A friend of mine who's a, a therapist told me that after uh, Brexit, the Brexit referendum in uh, Britain, um, all his clients, or many of his clients, who came to see him on, for their regular session, uh, showed increased, markedly increased levels of anxiety, separation anxiety, uh, fear, just, just generally very disturbed by the political decision that had been taken uh, in the referendum and the fears and the uncertainty and the, and also I think the, from a British social perspective, the, the divisions that it revealed within the body politic. And it was an interesting insight into how, as individuals, we are deeply connected to the whole, to the, to the social, political, economic, community that, of course, shapes us and that we, we live in and move in. And you would think that when you go to see your therapist, you wouldn't be particularly concerned about politics, but about your own uh, problems, your own anxieties, your own history, and so on. But in fact, uh, no one is an island, and we are deeply, intimately, intricately connected to the world around us and all aspects of the world around us. Now, that has perhaps always been the case ever since human civilization began to, to develop and people began to settle in in, in, in dwelling places, in cities, or in forts, uh, rather than just living as hunter-gatherers. And um, yet the media, our development of uh, international instantaneous communication, the media world that connects us with each other, with events, around the world instantaneously. We watch a terrorist attack, for example, as it unfolds. We watch the sporting events of the Olympics as they happen. We're there uh, in the moment with these events. That has subtly changed, I think, the relationship of the individual to the, to the, to the planet, to the global community. Uh, it has a great potential, it makes us aware we belong to a human family, not just to a little ethnic group or a little nationalistic group, uh, that we belong to a family in which the sufferings of the Syrian refugees touch our hearts just as much or, or, or as really as the sufferings of those we are living with. So. It open, has opened up for us uh, new, new ways, complicated in some ways, but new ways of seeing ourselves in relationship to others. One of the things we haven't yet got right is 
of course, how the media and what we call the news is actually presented, how it actually impacts upon us, because we're very familiar, of course, today with the idea of crisis. We live with a crisis mentality. So much so that we even crave it, we need it. I was listening to an interview the other day on the radio, uh, some English people who said their, their fear of terrorist attacks meant that they, they, you know, they, they wouldn't go on holiday, or they just stayed at home. In fact, the statistics are that you're 30 times more likely to be murdered than you are to be a victim of a terrorist attack. But the, the media, of course, and the graphic, sensational portrayal of these events through the media makes such an impact on us, visually, emotionally, that uh, we very easily lose perspective. We actually live in a, a less violent world than perhaps 100 years ago, but if you look at the statistics. But we're much more conscious of these uh, of these critical events. So we live in this crisis mentality, even to the extent that we need it, that we need sensational news. I'm always struck by Ireland, which is uh, a very, I think, one of the more peaceful <laughs> countries in the world. When you, turn, when you listen to the Irish news, it always begins with a tragedy, either a, a crime, a terrible crime, or a terrible car accident. Uh, it always begins with something like that. It's, we, we, it, and it's become, it's, I'm sure it's just become a habit. And if uh, you didn't begin the news with that kind of story, people would say, oh, nothing happened today. <laughs> so. We need, it's almost as if we need a daily dose of fear. It becomes a kind of addiction. And in that sense, if we are plugged into the media, as most of us are, and saw some of you doing your emails this morning, uh, if we are plugged in to that extent, then this climate of fear and sensationalism is one of the real forces we have to reckon with because it undermines anything like a contemplative life. It's filling us with a continuous sense of anxiety, of nervousness, and of fear. And fear, as Jean was saying yesterday, is perhaps the real um, opposite of um, what did you say it was the opposite of? Of peace and the opposite of love as well. <coughs> Hate, aggression, is, you know, often is a perversion or a distortion of what was originally love and fraternity and companionship. But when we feel those we have loved have betrayed us or our fraternal relationship has been... Uh, has been rejected, then 
that love easily turns into aggression and into hate and vengeance. But the real opposite of love as of peace is, uh, is fear. And fear is a big addiction in our culture and in our ways of communicating and interpreting ourselves. And when we sit down to meditate, therefore, we sit down as people living in this moment, not only in our particular personal world, but as citizens of the world who have been touched by these phenomena, by these forces. And when Jesus tells us, when you pray, do not worry, lay aside your anxieties, that has a particular point, a particular challenge, I think, to us today. It isn't that there haven't been fears and anxieties in the past, fears of the Vikings coming to attack your village or whatever, but uh, it's, the, it's almost the subliminal habitual nature of this quality of fear and crisis mentality that, that could undermine our spiritual life. And personal crisis and social crisis are linked in many ways. No one is an island. And it's true. If one person suffers, we all suffer. If we don't shut ourselves off in our little encapsulated media private worlds, then we will encounter, even at times of well-being, of happiness, of fulfillment in our own lives, we will encounter the suffering of others. And how do we, how do we respond to the suffering of others? All of this, I think, is reflected in the Hebrew prophets. I've been reading uh, the prophets recently, and uh, with the help of the great Jewish uh, biblical scholar, he, Abraham Herschel, um, who made the prophets one of his, his great lifelong uh, areas of study. And the, the prophets have left us an example of how we resonate with the sufferings of the poor, the victims of injustice, those who have been betrayed by their religious leaders, by the hypocrisy or the falseness of, uh, of political or religious leaders. And these individuals who were not political commentators, they weren't uh, journalists, what's the matter? So, they, they weren't journalists, but they, they, were, in, they were reluctant uh, spokespeople for 
those who had no voice, for those who had been excluded, rejected, uh, unjustly treated, betrayed. Uh, they, they, they didn't want to be in this role because, first of all, they got into trouble for it uh, or lost their own lives or found themselves driven out of the town or found themselves put in the stocks or uh, stoned or found themselves in great levels of anxiety and fear as they ran away uh, from, from, from the situation that had overwhelmed them. So they, they weren't sort of just part of the, the chattering media class when they stood up in the temple or in the synagogue and, and spoke their mind. They were pouring out their heart, in fact. And they were slightly extreme individuals. They weren't normal. They overreacted, perhaps you might say. We, we live with lots of levels of injustice and uh, lots of things wrong with our society, and we shrug our shoulders, you know, that's politics, corruption in politics, corruption in the banking world. Uh, we, we, doesn't make us feel very good, but uh, we, we have to live with it and move on. But these individuals, get, get on with our own lives. But these individuals were abnormal. They, were, they felt these injustices deeply and personally and uh, could not restrain themselves from speaking out against it and warning. Of course, they are the great examples of, um, of the warning that injustice, hypocrisy, the betrayal of responsibility, that this, all of these things uh, threaten the stability, the well-being, and the future of any society or any community. And the prophets saw this, understood this so deeply, this was their warning. You are going to be, you're going to destroy yourselves if you carry on like this. This is what they were saying. And do something about it now. Don't just cover it up and wait for the next crisis. So they were, they were extremists. They were unbalanced people in many ways, but they were calling uh, their contemporaries back to balance. And when they spoke to God, when they turned their, themselves towards God, from whom this sense of this passionate sense of justice uh, came, it was often to argue with God or berate God for having put them in this position. But they also, in a sense, represented the people to God, asking God's mercy on the people, on their blindness, on their apostasy, on their infidelity. And yet, when they turned towards the people, they were representing the absolute standards of, of divine justice, of divine mercy, divine love, and that these were absolute realities that human beings should not ignore. So they were conflicted people because they had to 
relate to their experience of God and to their experience of community, their experience of uh, their social and uh, political experience as well. So not surprisingly, they were pretty turbulent people. They felt deeply the social, economic injustices, the religious fraudulence of their times. And yet, even as they struggled with their own uh, feelings and their own sense of responsibility, sometimes trying to run away from the responsibility that they had, but being drawn back to it or feeling that God was pursuing them, they, their ultimate effect was to recall people to their senses. So today we have terrorism, we have Brexit, we have refugees, we have Syria, we have Mr. Trump, we, we have Poland, we have Hungary, we have Turkey, we have the Ukraine. Every day it, there is a, a crisis story or a, a deeply disturbing story of a shift in social, political um, uh, ideology, often towards the extreme right. And so we have a sense very often that we are part of a historical cycle that is coming to an end. And we're unclear where this takes us next. In Europe at the moment, we're totally unclear about what's going to happen as a result of Brexit. And we're unclear about what we will have to pass through before we get there. So it's not only individuals who are cracked, but uh, also our traditional political and social institutions and structures as well, the world itself. And so you might say, what's new? We know the world has been cracked ever since the fall. That's how the biblical vision of the world begins, is with this portrayal of a fall, a crack. It's like a child running and tripping up uh, and falling on the ground and, and, and cutting itself. It's, it's an image that we find in many of the fathers of the church, in fact, that describes the fall that um, in, a, in a more merciful image of the fall than we are often familiar with, um, that God gave Adam uh, a work to do, to be human, to become the divine image. And Adam ran off so enthusiastically with this mission that he fell into a big hole and fell down into the hole, which was a narrow little hole, and he got stuck in it and couldn't move. This is, this is the fall in the imagination of the, of the fathers of the church. So it wasn't that he had broken a rule and he was going to be punished. 
so much as that in his humanity, in his childishness, he had, uh, we had fallen into this state, and we were stuck in it. And then God, in his mercy, sends Jesus to pull us out of this pit that we've fallen into. That is redemption. There's a much more merciful and healing therapeutic image of, uh, of the human condition than the more legal one that we have become familiar with through other, other commentaries. So, the world itself is cracked and we are cracked as individuals and the, the relationship between our personal brokenness and the brokenness of our society uh, is a complex an intricate relationship. We can't separate them. It's even difficult to say which comes first. Is it the personal fall, the, the cracks, the faults in our own uh, human psyche, uh, the conditions that have formed us from childhood, or is it, and is it, the world uh, around us with its uh, levels of corruption, and uh, falsehood. But just as the light comes through the cracks in ourselves, and this is our personal experience of redemption, our personal experience of healing, this may come to us, you know, in an extreme way when your life is destroyed by alcoholism and can be turned around at some mysterious moment of grace when you take the first step and you say, I can't do this by myself. I need a higher power. I need help. It doesn't matter how I define that higher power, but I, I need something, someone. And of course, in the 12-step program, uh, God comes in the form of the group of the total honesty of the, of the, weekly, um, the weekly group and the particular care and attention of the, uh, what do they call them? The sponsor, the person who you can phone at any time of the day or night without charge. Uh, when you are in a crisis, when you're about to go back on the drink. I mean, and that, very powerful, I mean, it's one of the most powerful spiritual movements of the 20th century. And that very powerful movement is, is uh, not institutionalized, it's not commercialized, uh, it didn't go for sponsorship, it just developed through the human uh, need for help, for healing. And in the process, and of course, it came from a, a deep Christian faith as well, although it didn't impose that Christian belief on the people who were benefiting from the AA movement. But it didn't, it didn't hide the, um, the meaning of the higher power, the meaning of God. Every one of the 12 steps refers in some way to this higher power, especially the 11th step uh, through prayer and meditation to raise our conscious contact with God as we know God. 
So this extraordinary movement manifests to us, I think, uh, how in our deepest, worst moments of weakness, of brokenness, of despair, the light can come in. And then it can turn that crisis uh, and that despair into a new life, a way of hope, a way of, uh, a, a way of confidence, a, a renewal, a new creation. So that can happen uh, through an addiction. It could happen after a terrible divorce. It could happen when your career is destroyed but for one reason or another because you've been made redundant. Or uh, It could happen through a psychological illness, a depression. It could happen uh, even in the most painful bereavement when your partner in life has died and you find yourself after many years on your own. So these are, these are moments of brokenness in human life, which none of us would will, w wish upon ourselves or others, but happen. One way or another, we are going, we're not going to be able to avoid such moments. And we, we know through, and that's why it's so important that we bear witness to our own healing, that we can, uh, we can explain, describe to others how this can take place and offer hope. I was talking to somebody once who was, um, was in a very uh, dark and, and dangerous place and uh, thinking very seriously about suicide and uh, The, um, but there was, there was, there was some, uh, th th that person was able to connect with some very, very faint uh, sign of hope. And that little glimmer of light, hardly a spark, was enough to hold on to through this very dark and thick night that they were in. So the light can come through the rifts and ruptures of our own lives, but also, we hope, can come through the rifts and ruptures of our social life as well. And that's why we have to find a way today, especially because of the kind of consciousness that is being created through the media, we have to find a way of keeping the link, keeping the bridge between the individual, the personal, and the social, the political. And the danger of our culture is, of course, and we see this in the increasing shallowness, dishonesty, stupidity of modern politics and the failure. I mean, it's maybe not easy to be a politician today because you get pushed into a certain role. You won't survive for five minutes unless you play this role and speak this kind of false language. 
But the danger is, of course, is that, as we see everywhere, a rapidly increasing cynicism and disillusionment with politics, with public life, with business, with corporate life, uh, and, and therefore an increasing isolation of the individual. There's nothing I can do about this. The world is corrupt. The politicians are all corrupt. The banks are all corrupt. Big corporations don't pay their taxes. It's little people pay taxes. So why bother? But this is a, this is a, this is a terrible danger, both for the individual and for, the, and for the, any hope that our society has. And this is where I think the bridge between these two aspects of ourselves, because we are both personal individuals and solitary people with our own unique history, and we are social animals, and we are conditioned by our culture and by our society, and we have responsibilities to it. So these two aspects of ourselves reflected in the teaching of Jesus the solitary and the communal, we have to find ways of holding them together through this time of crisis. And I think this is where the spiritual wisdom and the contemplative life today and the experience of community is absolutely the first priority. Even light needs a medium to travel through. No light escapes a black hole. And this medium that allows the light is the contemplative consciousness, which is contemplation. That's why in the Christian wisdom, contemplation is not the preserve or the, or the privilege of a few mystics. It is essential to the very daily existence of the follower of Jesus. And this is perhaps one of the great contributions that the Christian contemplative wisdom has, has given to the universal tradition is that it is universal. It has been democratized. In the Greek world, I mean, Plato and the Greek philosophers all believed in contemplation, but they didn't think slaves could achieve contemplation or that women <laughs> could achieve contemplation. Uh, it was a very few highly educated, highly refined people living a very specialized and privileged kind of life who, would, who if they wanted to, could devote themselves to the cultivation of these higher states and of mind and of civilization and culture, and perhaps would become nice, generous, good slave owners and treat their wives with respect. But it was regarded as a, 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 a very you know, privileged, privileged um, position. In Christianity, which of course began with the hoi polloi, began as a, as a, well, it was a mixed religious movement. Of course, you did, you did have some 
some higher members of society, but generally it was a, it was the butchers and bakers and candlestick makers and, uh, and, and the slaves. We know that from the New Testament. You had, this was a very mixed bag of followers of a religion that the Romans didn't even think was a religion or a philosophy. It was neither, it wasn't a religion because it didn't contribute to social stability, didn't support the, you know, the, the status quo, and it wasn't a philosophy because it was based upon such an absurd premise. Faith in this Galilean uh, resurrection. So it was, didn't really have any, any credentials. But um, it was this ragbag of early followers of Jesus that were, you know, were formed into little communities, little groups, little house churches, kept in touch with each other, you know, through the travels of Paul or the other disciples, the apostles, in those early, that first hundred years or so, um, it was in that period, which we don't know so much about, that um, the, the, the teaching of Jesus and about the meaning of the human, what it is to be human, and how to relate to God, and how to relate to society, that that began to take form and in a, in a uniquely universe, universalist and um, inclusive way. So, this, the medium is this contemplative mind, or this contemplative experience, maybe. Our personal cracks, our personal problems can incapacitate and destroy us unless we develop some capacity that we could call contemplative, some capacity to be present, to face the truth about ourselves, to be in the moment, unless we have some capacity to distinguish between fantasy and reality. and some capacity to withdraw our projections from the way we blame everything on other people and refuse to accept responsibility for ourselves. And all of this is what we mean by contemplation. This is the work that we undertake in our daily meditation. And at the heart of this is this experience of stillness and silence in whatever kind of life we may be living. And it's precisely in times of crisis that the contemplative consciousness is most needed and most at hand, in fact. You look at the 14th century, uh, 14th century England, for example, it's reflected in other parts of Europe at the same time, but there was this great flowering of, of the, the English mystical tradition in the 14th century. So we think they're all going around in this medieval bliss, 
you know, living in these beautiful cathedrals and all the places we go and visit as tourists. But half the population had been wiped out by the Black Death. The Hundred Years' War was, had devastated uh, England and, and Europe. Uh, the social order was thrown into chaos, the peasants' revolt. This was a, you know, a time of at least as much chaos and crisis as our own. And isn't it interesting that it's at this precise moment, crisis, turbulence, chaos, that the great voice of this culture, this particular culture, uh, transmitted its own dialect about contemplative life, contemplative consciousness. The Cloud of Unknowing, Richard Rohr, uh, Richard uh, Rohr uh, and uh, Marjorie Kemp, and uh, who else, uh, all the others, Julian of Norwich. Each of them a unique, uh, unique voice, but speaking out of this turbulent time. Times of persecution under the, in, in different parts of the world, often produces great contemplative witness different kinds of martyrs, not only martyrs of blood, but witnesses of the spiritual path, and offering a way through the crisis to order, to peace, to harmony, because these conditions most fully express the reality of the human. It's when, we're, when, we, when we are in harmony, in peace with one another, when we share order that we can most fully grow into our human potential. And when humanity sinks into chaos, into inhumanity, and the 20th century has shown us many examples, almost continually examples of that, then it's at those times that a spiritual renewal is most needed. And the voice of the contemplative part of the world, the contemplatives in the world, is, is, is most uh, urgently required. And that has to be encouraged and respected. And it is a prophetic voice. It will often be rejected, it will often be ridiculed, it will often be, today, subject to commercialization, which is another way of ridiculing something. You turn it into a product, charge for it. So, of course, to, to bear witness to this contemplative spirit is going to, like as with the prophets of old, is going to be difficult. It won't be successful. It's not the way to succeed socially, materially. But even so, it can be communicated through individuals, especially though through communities in which this fundamental wisdom 
that the light comes through the cracks, that healing happens through the very wounds that require the healing, that it is in human weakness that the power of God is manifested. It's this very deep but simple wisdom that is at the heart of any true contemplative witness. And it can be shared across all generations to the children and the elderly, regardless of belief or background. In the Christian vision, the contemplative experience raises our consciousness of our union with Christ and as a result of that union with the mind of Christ, with the love of Christ, with the heart of Christ, as a result of that a new creation will ensue. For everyone who is united uh, to Christ there is a new creation. That means what? doesn't mean that all the problems of the world are going to disappear. It's not a utopia. doesn't mean there won't be corrupt bankers or corrupt politicians or uh, terrorist attacks. But it will mean that we have and can develop and expand a new way of seeing, a new way of interpreting of recognizing the signs of the times, a new capacity to see and deal with reality rather than denying or running away from it. And this is why in our personal lives, and that means also in our communities, in our meaningful networks of relationship, we need to prioritize a recovery of the lost arts of the spiritual life today. And although we can understand that within the particular crisis of our own time and culture, in a way also there's nothing new about it. Watch yourselves, or your hearts will be coarsened with debauchery and drunkenness and the cares of life. Well, those are kind of biblical words, you know. You wouldn't you hear many politicians speaking about debauchery <laughs> and uh, drunkenness, the cares of life, but we can recognize those in our culture, the excesses, the, the um, uh, drug problem, the uh, substance abuse of all kinds, escaping from the cares of life in, with false, false hopes. 
So watch yourselves, or your hearts will be coarsened. What is the heart? The heart is that sensitive organ of consciousness which allows us to see God when it is pure. And it's our heart that we give to another person whom we love. And if our hearts are coarsened, they're not working. They are covered up with so much grime or so much cholesterol or so much plaque or whatever it is that coarsens and hardens the heart that uh, we are incapable, for the time being anyway, we're incapable of seeing God or seeing the other person as they are. And there is no greater tragedy for any human being than that. There's no greater tragedy than for any culture to have become so habituated to these coarsening uh, activities that the majority of its citizens suffer in this way, are unable to see each other, but live in little bubbles of individualism and self-centeredness. So watch yourselves, or this will happen, and that day will be sprung on you suddenly like a trap. Well, here Jesus is speaking like the prophets. He's warning us, if you keep going in this direction, that's where you're going. There's a great Chinese wisdom saying that if you keep moving in the direction in which you are going, you will arrive at the place you're going to. <laughs> that really is what the prophets are saying, isn't it? Just change your course, metanoia, turn around. Or this is where you're going, over the, over the earth. For it will come down on every living person on the face of the earth. There is a day of judgment, a day of reckoning, there is a point of no return. This isn't God's punishment, this is our mortality. This is the way things are. And if we are not prepared, we will experience this as disaster. But it isn't necessary. We can live with our mortality, we can live with the pains and fears of life without being overwhelmed by them. Provided, as Jesus puts it here, we watch out. We're always saying to each other, you know, take care, see you later, take care. Watch your step. Take special care. Somebody writes to me and says, take special care. <laughs> so, he says, stay awake, praying at all times, for the strength to survive all that is going to happen and stand with confidence before the Son of Man. Stay awake, praying at all times. Well, isn't that what we mean by the contemplative life? So the Christian vision is that our recovering the lost arts of our spiritual practice, rediscovering what praying at all times means. It doesn't mean going to church the whole time. 
It means opening up within ourselves that prayer of the Spirit, which is continuous and which is our deepest experience of prayer. As John Main uh, insisted when he was teaching about meditation, meditation is the prayer of the heart, but it's not my prayer in any individualistic or consumer sense of being mine, but it is my way into the prayer of the Spirit, the prayer of Christ, His prayer, to go with Him, in Him, through Him, to the Father in the Spirit, with each other. So the call of the prophets down the ages is reflected in, in the saying of Jesus, to stay awake, to correct the abuses uh, that would coarsen our hearts. You know, we have every magazine now has a, a lifestyle section. And they're all referring to this in a very light and diluted and slightly consumeristic way. Get your life together. You know, do this. Try these tricks or go to this resort or, you know, all these little rather consumerized bits of diluted spirituality reflecting a hunger within our culture for spirituality, for contemplative consciousness. So the call of the prophets, which is, in, is undiluted, it's full strength. And that's, of course, what you would expect to hear from the prophets like Jesus. A call back to the narrow path that leads to life. And that reflects strangely, mysteriously, that call back to watchfulness, to wakefulness, to the narrow path that leads to the good life. That reflects God's compassion for us. And that's really what the prophets are doing. They're engaging with the crisis of the time without denying it, without denying the threat that it poses to our future. But in doing so, they expose and communicate the compassion of God for, for creation. Uh, Abraham Heschel speaks about the prophets as being consumed by an experience of the pathos of God. And this, of course, is deeply biblical, deeply Christian, different from other spiritual wisdom traditions. That ultimate reality that God is, is suffering with us and suffers for us and will not betray his covenant with us, in other words, will not in any way devalue our own divine likeness, the freedom that we have, the dignity we have, the capacity to grow, to transcend, to become godlike. God isn't going to betray that covenant 
built into our initial software, our initial creation. But nor does God just stand outside like a scientist objectively observing what is happening. And if we doubt that, then we, yeah, we well might and maybe should at times, but we can see the proof of that and the expression of that in the most exemplary cases of human compassion. When we see how human beings can be compassionate to each other. Not shutting their borders, uh, not holding refugees on tropical islands and uh, keeping them away from, but, or not just shoving the mentally handicapped uh, into institutions, not isolating or demonizing uh, people with a particular belief or a particular sexual orientation or whatever. So, but truly engaging with the people we meet or the people we know are in our world with compassion. And when we see that, we have seen an example of the divine compassion or how the divine compassion works. Now, all of this flows, as I said, from this wakefulness, this watchfulness, this ability to be present, to face the truth of ourselves and of our situation, to deal with our fears, to distinguish between fantasy and reality, to live with our faults, our addictions, our, our brokenness. And this is what we mean by the contemplative life. It's not going off into some, you know, uh, utopian cloister. And unfortunately, in the Christian tradition, we, we misrepresented the meaning of contemplative life by identifying it with the cloister. No wonder we had to keep the world out of the cloister because it wasn't good for the world to see what was going on there. <laughs> but when the monks of the past, when they spoke from reality and the reality of their own struggles, and the monks, who, who, especially the early monks, who were not uh, caught up in the clerical um, uh, institutionalism, the power structures of the church, then they were able to, to, to show, and the Desert Fathers and mothers were very clear about this, it doesn't matter whether you're here in the desert as a monk or whether you are living in the town uh, and raising a family, it's the same thing. Just different because we're all different and we have different needs to keep ourselves balanced. But it's the same thing for all of us. And that's the, you know, 
And if we don't face that universality of contemplation, which is affirmed by the gospel and by the teaching of Jesus on prayer and the Sermon on the Mount, it's very clear he's not speaking to specialist group. He's speaking to whatever crowd, ragbag crowd of people were sitting there uh, on, the, on the mountain listening to him. And the tragedy is when we construct a false utopian, falsely idealized uh, image of contemplation, something that is that we uh, idolize from a distance and think that it belongs to a few specialized people and maybe we'll pay them to keep them doing it for us, but we don't have time for it ourselves or we don't have the capacity for it ourselves or we're too busy ourselves. That's the tragedy. And we see that tragedy reflected in the... In the uh, on the occasions when the church institutionally as a power structure, and it is inevitably that as well, when it prefers to maintain its own image as a, as a perfect society, and it has done this over the child abuse scandals, and when you speak to some of the bishops who admit that this is what they did in the past, you can often see a, that they have experienced a conversion. They didn't know that's what they were doing until they looked back retrospectively and saw that was what they were doing. And we should praise God that they, they did come to that awareness and that, and that we, can, we can share the pain and the shame of that and move on and make sure we don't repeat it. So it's not about just kicking the church or leaving the church or hating the church because it, because it, we all do it. We all construct these false uh, idols and then we defend those idols to the bitter end because those false idols give us the excuse of avoiding ourselves and of refusing to admit the cracks and the faults and the weaknesses within ourselves as individuals. So the contemplative consciousness, what, I, what I'm saying really is, I'm, is that this is, of, this is a, of a universal importance across all generations, all ages, all backgrounds, indeed all traditions and cultures, that it is essentially human. And if it is not essentially human, Jesus would not have described this in his teaching on prayer and linked this contemplative experience, this contemplative consciousness, to our social relations with each other. And that reconnection is what the prophets are reminding us of, not only in the past, but today as well.
So we have a little uh, time, but why don't we just take a few moments uh, of quiet and then we could take a few moments if anyone would like to share any thoughts uh, or raise any questions. Let's just take a few moments to be quiet together. <laughs> 